Good to see you. If you're joining us online, sorry for the late delay, uh, but we are ready to go. Let me open in a word of prayer, and we will get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love towards us that was forever settled in Christ's death and resurrection. Lord, because of that, we can boldly approach you and enter the before you, Lord, at, in, at, at the throne of grace and communion with you. Lord, we know that you are with us now, and uh, we ask that you would be glorified today, Father, in what we teach and what we talk about this evening um, as we look at another hymn. We pray that we would be encouraged in our faith. Father, we thank you <clears throat> um, for the fellowship of the saints, Lord, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And through the gifts that you give them, Lord, they minister to us, they take care of us, they help us to grow spiritually into the image of Christ. And uh, we ask that you would bless them for their service to you and for their companionship, their friendship, and their brotherhood and sisterhood. Lord, we know that this will continue for all eternity, and so we are grateful for it. And uh, I pray that you would be with any that are still on their way. And Father, um, as Jesus taught us to pray, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, we ask that you would uh, provide for our daily needs, whatever they might be, um, or that is a collective prayer, and that we pray that for each other, that you would give us this day our daily bread. Lord, we are a body and uh, a unit, and we ask that you would just take care of us all. We also ask, Father, um, for a gracious heart towards those who sin against us and harm us and hurt us. We pray that you would help us to be forgiving of them as you, as you have been forgiving towards us, and that we may show what the gospel looks like and show your attribute of, of love and forgiveness. Lord, <clears throat> we also ask that you would protect us from temptation and sin. We pray that the evil one would not get the upper hand on us, uh, on us and that as you promise, you always make a way of escape for us uh, to uh, resist temptation and to flee it. And so I pray that we would do so for your glory and for your honor. We pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this evening we're going to spend our time looking at the hymn called Face to Face with Christ my Savior. I abbreviated it face-to-face -face because that's what the name of the song is that we sing, a slightly uh, different version as far as music arrangement is concerned, but lyrically it is the same. Now, you may not have known this, but the lyrics of many hymns are often written by one person, while the music or the tune is written by another person. Most of the hymn writers that we have looked at so far in the past seven weeks um, we've had enough information about them to share so that um, we had a full biographical sketch that took, took up a good part of the lesson. And to give a second biographical sketch of the composer of music would just have taken too long. So for the most part, we've primarily stuck to just the person who wrote the lyrics. That's really all that we've looked at for the most part. And sometimes... Like last week, when we talked about Edward Mote, we didn't have a lot of biographical information about him. There just isn't a lot out there in regards to him. So we spent a little bit more time talking about a few of the things he said, and we looked at those in light of Scripture. Well, this evening, we don't actually have a ton of information about uh, the writer when it comes to the lyrics. So I'm going to cover the author briefly of this hymn, and then I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the composer of the music, because both were radically involved in helping put this song together. And then we're going to take these two people, we're going to bridge the story together of how the lyrics met the music. 
And as usual, we'll examine the theology that undergirds the lyrics, where those things are derived from Scripture, and then we'll listen to a few samplings of the hymn in different genres of music. Now, the author of the poem, her name is Carrie Ellis Breck. That is the author of this hymn. She was born in January of 1855, and she died in March of 1934. She was the second child out of seven, that's a pretty large family. There's some of us that understand what that is like, whether uh, we have a lot of kids or whether we came from a large family or whether we're just part of a large family in general. So she was the second of seven kids that her parents had, and she was uh, the, the only girl, all right? And so her parents were devout Christians, and so Carrie grew up with a godly influence upon her life, but I'm sure she had a lot of brotherly love. Um, don't know if she was a tomboy or not, or fairly strong, but she grew up around the influence of a lot of boys. Interestingly enough, being the only daughter of her parents, she later married a gentleman named Frank Breck, and she had five daughters of her own with no boys. So whatever was going on in their genes, it tended to lean to one side or the other. And Frank and Carrie, they were members of the first Presbyterian Church of Vineland, which is in Vermont. And so they were Presbyterian. Well, we're Baptists, of course. But uh, by her own admission, and I'll explain what I mean by this, by her own admission, she was not able to carry a tune. We might call these people tone deaf. Have you ever heard that term before? Tone deaf? Okay. I'll explain it to you. Tone deafness is a condition where a person is unable to perceive the correct pitch of a note. I'll explain that because those are all musical terms. Okay? Uh, when you strike, let's take for example a guitar or a piano or a keyboard. When you strike a string on a guitar or uh, you press a piano key and the little hammer strikes the strings or you blow into a trumpet, there's another instrument, it produces a note. It might be a C note, an A note, but what you are hearing is a sound wave or the particles of the air moving, okay? You know how when you jump into a pool, you make a splash and it makes waves, right? And you can tap it fast, the water, and it'll make a bunch of waves or you can do one big plunge and it might make big, slow waves, right? <clears throat> well, what you're hearing in music is sound waves and some of them are longer and some of them are shorter, okay? And they're more frequent or they're less frequent, but they are waves, they're sound waves. And every note has a particular sound wave pattern. Our ears, when working correctly, they're able to perceive these notes rightly. And so um, we can hear it and we can in, somewhat, in some way identify it by mimicking it with our voices. Okay? So pitch, when, when you're unable to perceive the pitch, you're unable to perceive the frequency of the sound wave, the frequency meaning how often that wave occurs, right? If you go out to eat frequent, it means you go out to eat a lot. If you're one of the people that go out less frequent, it might be once every two months. If uh, you're more frequent, it might be twice a week. That's what we mean by frequency. And each sound wave, each note has a certain pitch or a frequency, okay? So lower notes that are low, they have fewer waves, and thus they are said to have uh, a lower frequency, where higher notes, as the pitch is raised, they have more frequency, all right? And so you got low, low frequency, and you got high frequency, and there should be a slide up there to help you see what that looks like. Is that correct? Make sense? There it is. All right. 
Now you can see what high frequency looks like versus low frequency, lower notes with lower pitch versus higher notes with higher pitch. If, again, there are less notes, uh, less waves in a note, it has a lower frequency because the waves are less frequent. And if it has a higher frequency, then there are more waves. They're more often, they're more frequent, and thus it has a higher frequency. Now, some people are unable or, or some people are able to hear the note. They, they physically hear the note because they're feeling it with their eardrum and all the parts of the ear. It feels the air moving and they can hear the vibrations but their perception is off when it comes to reprodu reproducing their notes with their own vocal cords. It, it might be similar to color blindness, where they, they see color, but it's not the correct color. Does that make sense? They, they, they see the, the, the light waves or whatever causes a certain color to shine, a, a lack of, uh, or uh, not being able, I forget how light waves work. Anyway, I wasn't talking about that, talking about sound waves. But in a similar way, they can't see uh, or they can't hear the correct note. And they can't differentiate between notes. And to them, it all kind of sounds the same. In fact, some people with, that are tone deaf, they don't like music because it might sound like pots and pans just banging to them. It just sounds very different if they're truly tone deaf. And the first, so for them, music might be very uninteresting because some notes sound the same. They hear them, but they can't differentiate. And that's what tone deafness is. And it can be very frustrating for a person who, is, who hears a note in a song, but they're unable to sing what, what they're actually hearing. They can't make the correct connection. And sometimes people around them will mock them because they don't sing like we do or they're not hearing it correctly, thus they're not reproducing it correctly, and it can throw other people off and make them frustrated, but they equally might be frustrated that they can't hit the same notes. So left to themselves, they might not even be aware that they're singing incorrectly. Well, imagine someone who wants to write songs and is tone deaf, right? Well, you write music by more than just hearing it. There's a mathematical way to lay it on paper and put notes and things like that, but to play it and hear it would sound very different to them. So Carrie, she's tone deaf, and so she kept away from writing music and trying to compose tunes. That would make sense, right, if you struggle with that? But she was adept. She was good at writing poems, and so that's what she did. She composed over 2,000 poems. It was also said about her that her health was not really well. Um, it wasn't particularly good, and so... Um, at home, she would frequently have to take rests if she was doing chores around the house. She would have to rest quite a bit. And we'll put a picture up on the screen. But she'd often sit in a rocking chair with one of her daughters on her lap while writing poems. Okay? So you can see another picture of her. But because she was not great at the musical part of writing music, of a hymn, she would have other people write music for her, that part of the song. Because some of her poems were, uh, but some of her poems were actually published in religious literature. Uh, there's an example up on the screen. She had some uh, stuff published in the Presbyterian Banner, which is like a Presbyterian magazine. And uh, you can just look at it up there and you see an example of it. Um, this particular poem is titled, Before the Leaves Are Turning. And it's archived, um, but that's the name of the poem. I'm gonna read it to you. Um, and uh, you can hear and see in the poem how much she enjoys and loves nature. Um, and this part of nature is just before fall hits and leaves behind the duty of work, okay? Or as she leaves behind the duty of work. So here's the poem. It'll be up on the screen for you. It says this. I will leave the dusty walks of men and the rugged ways of duty. That's work right there, 
okay? I will be a carefree child again in the depths of woodland's beauty. I will not wait till the forest, uh, forest blaze with autumn glories burning. I want to tread in the cool green waves before the leaves are turning. That's verse one of this poem. She just wants to enjoy the wondrous uh, fall weather, the changing of the leaves uh, before they turn like, a, looking, looking like they're on fire. That is, they turn orange and yellow, right? The second verse says, I will leave today in nature's smiles. I will bask in all her splendor. I will yield my heart to her witching wiles, her love so sweet and tender. I will breathe my fondest, truest thought, my deepest, holiest yearning, ere autumn's touch a change has wrought before her leaves are turning. And so here's an image of a non-religious poem all right, that she published um, in a magazine. I want to show you another image. Um, there should be a gentleman on the screen and some lyrics next to her, a song sheet. But here's an image of a non-religious song that she published called The Chair That Rocked Us All. And so even uh, back in the 1850s, you can see that she had desires to write poems and write songs uh, and other stuff like that, but she was not content to leave them in a private notebook or like a private sketchbook or a, a diary. She wanted to share them with others. Having lived most of her life in Vermont, she later moved to Oregon with her husband, and it appears by the amount of publishing that was going on that her writing declined after uh, this change in her life. After she moved to Oregon, her writing slowed down. But her song, Face to Face, that we're going to sing later, is her most popular poem that was put to music by someone else. And it has encouraged believers for over 100 years. So it's not one of the oldest songs that we've looked at. It's actually one of the youngest or earliest or newest songs that we've looked at. Now, with that just a little bit of information about her, that leads us to discuss the person who wrote the poem or who wrote the music to this poem. Now, the composer of the music is Grant Colfax Tuller. Grant Colfax Tuller. Now, Grant was born in 1869. He died in 1950. So that was actually not too long ago. Uh, so you can see that the hymn was uh, written either in the late uh, 1800s or maybe even the early 1900s. Now, his parents, they named him after President Ulysses S. Grant. So that's where his first name comes from. The vice president at that time was Schuyler Colfax. So his parents took the last name of President Grant, the last name of President, uh, Vice President Colfax, and they named their son Grant Colfax Toller. At age two, his mother died, and his father, who was an impoverished, he was an, a disabled Civil War veteran, he, at, at that time, they were so poor that this father of his shipped the nine children off to various family members. That's tough, right? Your wife dies, you don't have a help meet, so you have to send your kids off to live with fa uh, other ma uh, family members. And Grant found himself being passed around quite a bit. He eventually found himself in a, in a man's house that was not his relative, where he was severely abused. Because of the abuse that was going on, Grant ran away from home before he even hit his early teen years. So a young child running away from home, and he found himself in a struggle to survive. That's tough. I don't know of any of us that have had to endure that kind of situation. Can you imagine a 10-year, 11-year-old running away from home because of abuse and having to struggle on their own? 
Eventually, he was living with several other men in a similar situation, several other guys. Grant was injured on his job in a textile mill. A textile mill is where fibers are turned into yarn, and then yarn is turned into fabric, and then they're colored or dyed, and they're used for household items, these fabrics like furniture um, or even clothing. All right, So he's working in a textile uh, mill, but because of an injury, he got hurt there. He was limited to working as an errand boy, or what they call then a shoe clerk. All right, So he's an errand boy. A shoe clerk has nothing to do with shoes, actually. Uh, rather, they do a variety of work in industries or businesses. You can be a shoe clerk in any number of businesses, but generally speaking, this person answered incoming phone calls. They filed paperwork, handled mail, prepared invoices. They processed payments, took notes, minutes during business meetings because they have a physical injury that prevents them from doing harder physical labor. So he's kind of reduced to secretary work. Now, struggling to survive, having had a hard childhood, Grant took to heavy drinking to try and drown out some of his sorrows. And one day, one night actually, he was drunk and he was on a ferry boat and he jumped over to try to kill himself and he jumped over into freezing waters. Um, and near, a nearby stranger grabbed him before he could complete that um, suicide mission. And this stranger told him, Son, don't break your mother's heart by doing this, okay? Because of this man's compassion, it was at this point that Grant decided to seek after God. And so he went to an evangelistic camp meeting, right? Some people call them revival meetings, church meetings, where the gospel's preached and all kinds of people from the town come out to hear this evangelist speaking. And so in 1888, at the age of 19, Grant became a believer in Christ while attending one of these camp meetings. And remember that as a child... He, he ran away. <clears throat> he had no formal school training, no elementary school training. He, he states that he may have had six months worth of schooling in his youth. That's not very much, which means he likely couldn't read or write, nor could he compose music. And anything that he did know, he had to learn on his own. Um, and uh, he had to be self-taught. But as a young Christian, he began to attend church. The members of his church saw something special in him. And they helped him get into Hackstown or Hackettstown Academy, where he actually began to train for ministry, to be a pastor, and where he began to grow in his understanding of music and composition and piano playing. So his church family was instrumental in that. Grant eventually became a pastor, but after pastoring for just a little while in Delaware, <clears throat> he realized that this was not for him, and God hadn't really made him to do this. And so... Rather than writing uh, sermons, he determined that writing poems and music and singing was where God might use him best. And so he stopped pastoring, and he began to play music for the evangelistic meetings that he was helping in. And he went on to found a publishing company, which produced many hymns and many songs and many hymnals. Now, Grant wrote a poem that is now famous, and it's called The Weaver. I'm not into poetry much, so I have to trust that it is famous amongst those who read poetry. Uh, but the reason for its popularity is not because when he wrote it, it became popular. It became popular because it had a particularly huge impact on a very special woman. This lady's name was Corey Ten Boom. Has anybody ever heard that name before? All right, just a few of you. All right, Corey Ten Boom. She quoted it, and I'll just tell you a little bit about her. She quoted it so much, this poem called The Weaver, that people began to think that she wrote it. 
Corey Tim Boom, you may know she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. Has anybody ever heard of that book? The Hiding Place. All right, same hands, all right? In the book, she tells how she and her family helped the Jewish people during the Holocaust. The Holocaust is when Adolf Hitler of Germany was seeking to destroy the Jews, and some six million were killed in the process. And uh, just a horrific, uh, horrific thing that happened. But Corrie ten Boom, <clears throat> she's from the Netherlands. She lives there, and her family was part of a Dutch Reformed church. All right, so we have some common things in uh, our lives and our religious beliefs with her. And because of their family's love for Christ, they sought to help those that Hitler was seeking to exterminate. And uh, as as he invaded other countries, and so sometimes Corey and her family. Uh, they would hide people for a few hours as uh, the Nazis came by to try to round up the Jewish people. Sometimes they would hide them for days. They'd provide them money and food. They did a lot to help the Jewish people. And eventually she and her family were arrested for doing this, and they were sent to a concentration camp, but again, not before helping some 800 people, Jewish people, escape the Nazis. And so she tells her story because they made it out of the concentration camp and did not die there. She eventually made it out, and she was able to tell her, tell her story through her book and her public speaking, her book being called The Hiding Place. And I know there's uh, probably at least a couple of movies that were named uh, after her book as well. I remember that in uh, either junior high or elementary school. Now, this poem that Grant Tuller wrote was one of Corey Ten Boom's favorite poems. And the poem, the poem beautifully paints God as the master weaver of a tapestry. Okay, a tapestry is, uh, if you want to think of a painting uh, where, uh, that is beautifully put together, think of a piece of a fabric that is put together, almost like a quilt, a tapestry. God is the weaver putting everything together and weaving it together. And in this poem, Grant compares himself to the tapestry. Or to put it in biblical terms, God is the potter, and we are the clay. And he shapes us for whatever he desires. So uh, being a weaver is comparable to, uh, 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 the weaver to the tapestry is comparable to the potter and the clay. And so too, the idea of this poem flows with a similar truth. So follow along with me as I read Grant Tuller's poem called The Weaver. He says, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. That's beautiful, right? Um, and that's hitting my heart pretty personal right now. What we look at, we see one angle, and God sees another, and we see the underside, which may look very different. If you've ever seen the backside of a fabric, it has a different pattern than on the, the, the front, and the front is what's made to look beautiful, right? And as you look from a different angle, it's like, what is this funky-looking thing? Flip it around, and you see what the artist is doing, okay? That's how our lives are, right? And I'll just pause. This wasn't part of my lesson. I wrote this last week. Me and my dear brother back there and one who's not here tonight, we just recently lost our jobs, and we're looking at the underside of God's plan. All we see is the rain clouds. But sometimes we don't realize that the rain towns, the rain clouds are coming to pour out rains of blessing that we often need. And they look scary. That's, that's from the song, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. But this poem expresses something similar. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride 
Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly. Those are parts of the the instrument that weaves fabrics together. So not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly. When God unrolls the canvas and reveals the reason why, the dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing his truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Um, that is just the providence of God. Uh, I'll just say in, in my life and hopefully others that need to hear that God is a master weaver. I didn't even get to rehearse, re-rehearse this. Normally before I speak, I re-rehearse this, and uh, I didn't. This was, uh, I'll confess, I wrote this in one shot. This is a rough draft, unedited, and I didn't rehearse it. So to go back and at, with fresh eyes read this poem, is, it's very comforting and very moving to me at the moment. And someone like Corey Ten Boom, who I'm sure through... Through fearful times of trying to work against the Nazis, because that can be a scary thing. You're hiding people and you know that you're putting your own life in danger and then arrested for it. That this poem moved her and was one of her favorites shows the power in ministry that God uses an individual in just composing a poem. I think it's beautiful. And that's what godly songs do for us. They take the truth of Scripture and they put the ideas into a rhyming, and into a pattern, in a rhyme, along with music that helps us to remember them, so that at any given moment, through God's gift of music and rhythm and pattern, we can summon up his word and sing it to God. And we can rejoice, or we can reinforce the truths of scripture in our heart. And so this marvelous poem, written by Grant, ministered to Corey Ten Boom, who quoted it in her book, The Hiding Place. So Grant's impact on a musical, as a musical composer and as a poem writer is quite impressive because God used Corey Ten Boom to minister to not just the 800 people that she helped with her parents to rescue from the Nazis, but through her speaking and through uh, her ministry, she was able to share the love of Christ with many. So it's just amazing. God used an abused runaway child with no education to minister to another lady who God helped to rescue Jews from genocide by a maniac. But God's, Grant's music would also be used to minister to the church at large. And what follows next is a story of how Carrie Breck and her poem met Grant's music, all right? The story of the song. In 1898, Grant was helping out with music in those Methodist evangelistic camp meetings and when we say camp, we don't necessarily mean like up at campgrounds. They're just tent meetings. They pop them up in a field, and they're just called camp meetings for whatever reason. But he was helping out with the music. And prior to one of these evening meetings, he and another pastor spent the afternoon visiting the sick. They had a little bit of time to eat before the evening meetings. And so he, Grant went with the other pastor to his house to grab something to eat. <clears throat> with not much time to spare... They tried to eat what they could. Um, but the pastor and his wife, they knew that Grant was fond of a particular jelly. 
that they had around the house. They knew he liked this particular uh, sweet jelly. There wasn't much left. Uh, I don't know if you've ever got to the bottom of something, the bottom of ice cream or the bottom of the last few cookies. Um, but uh, I feel guilty when I'm like the one that eats the last little bit. Right? Uh, maybe you don't have that guilt. Maybe you do. I don't know. But they wanted Grant uh, to have the rest of it because there wasn't very much to go around. And so they offered the remaining contents to him, and he replied, this is all for me, even though there was only a little bit. And that inspired him at that moment. This is all for me. That inspired him at that very moment to go over to a piano that they had in the house and write some music and lyrics to a song. And the song started off with the phrase, all for me, the Savior suffered all for me, he bled and died. And so uh, this jelly song, right, as some people refer to it, um, that night everyone joked and they laughed and they said, man, we, we, they didn't say man because they didn't talk like that back then, right? But they said uh, that they ought to give him more jelly to inspire him to write more songs, right? They wanted him to share the song that he had written at the evangelistic meeting but he declined because the song was not ready to share publicly, right? Most people don't write a song in just a few minutes and they're ready to parade it before the world. You want to refine it and work on it. But the next day, the camp meeting's over the next day, he checks his mail, and the mailbox, in the mailbox was a letter from Carrie Breck, right? A tone-deaf poet. She knew that Grant was a pastor. She knew that he was a musician and a publisher. And so she had sent Grant several poems, and she was requesting in that letter that he composed some music for these poems. Scanning through the poems, he came across the poem Face to Face with Christ, my Savior. And he realized that the jelly tune that he had composed the night before fit perfectly with her poem. So he pushed his words to the side, inserted her words into the music, and so the poem and the hymn were wed together, and they've been together ever since. So that's how that song came about between a tone-deaf person, tone-deaf person and an abused young man uh, who became a Christian. Just a marvelous story. Let's look at the theology of the song. I'm going to read the first verse. Now, his, his uh, uh, um, Carrie Ellis uh, Breck, her song um, had four, four stanzas, four verses, Okay. In the version that we sing, we only sing two. There's one, two, three verses, four verses. We sing the second and the third. And so those are the only ones I'm going to discuss just for sake of time and because those are the ones that we're going to sing tonight, okay? The song starts off like this. Only faintly now I see him with a darkened veil between, but a blessed day is coming when his glory shall be seen. Now, Scripture makes it clear that there are at least two kinds of beholding when it comes to seeing Christ. Behold means to look upon, to look intently at something, okay? Scripture intimates that there, it shows us clearly that there are two kinds of beholding when it comes to Christ. Carrie Breck, she had imagined what it would be like to see Christ face to face one day, to behold Jesus Physically and personally, face to face. That's what this song is talking about. Our seeing Jesus in person, our seeing our God face to face. Now, the other kind of seeing Christ is that which comes through the word of God. That is to say, 
We see Jesus now with the eyes of faith, okay? Or we trust what God's word says about Jesus, and in that way, we see Christ. Does that make sense? Okay? We'll discuss both because the song mentions both, all right? She says, indeed, I, I, uh, uh, what does she say? I see him now, but it's faintly. It's dimmed. It's veiled. I see Christ, but not as clearly as I could, as if there's a veil that darkens her visibility of the Lord. But, she says in the song, there's coming a day when I will see his physical glory. Okay? That's what the song says. Only faintly now I see him with a darkened veil between me and Jesus. Okay? But a blessed day is coming when his glory shall be seen. Now, this veil that she's referring to when she says, um, I, I, I see him faintly, I can't see him completely, it's likely referring to her current state of being, okay? In our current state of being, meaning that we are away from Jesus as he is preparing a place for us, right? There's something that's between us and him right now, and we can't physically see Christ primarily because he's gone from the world. Our human eyes, if Jesus were here, we would be able to see him, behold his human nature, and, um, it, but it's not the case because we are spatially separated. Does that make sense? Okay. Wherever Jesus is physically right now, meaning uh, physically in this universe or perhaps outside of it, I don't know, wherever uh, God has placed heaven, all right, wherever Jesus is, we cannot see him because we're spatially apart. But our human eyes would be capable of seeing him were he here in person, okay? Um, and uh, just like the apostles and the early disciples that saw him resurrected, or even prior to the resurrection, um, before and after, they were able to see Jesus physically, all right? Now, but ever since Christ has departed from the world, we can't see him until he comes again. So what a blessed day it will be for us. For now, we can't see him because of the veil of spatial uh, and space, but we still can see him in the word, okay? So um, that veil will be removed one day, the veil of space. But nevertheless, we can still see Jesus. That's what she says. I can faintly see him. And it's not because her eyes are so good she can see well beyond into the universe and see Jesus physically. That's not why. The reason why is because she can see Jesus in the word, okay? She can see Jesus in the word. And that, that brings to mind the other way that we see Christ, with the eyes of faith. That is, we trust what God says about him in his word, and thus we can behold Jesus. I want to share with you a scripture from 2 Corinthians 3 that says this. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, referring to us believers, with unveiled faces, right, with veil removed, we behold, what does it say? The glory of the Lord. So we see the glory of Jesus. We see Jesus and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, here in 2 Corinthians, we want to make some differentiations, okay? Because the poem is being clever with words, Scripture is being crystal clear with words, okay? Here in 2 Corinthians, we see that Scripture says we can behold the Lord, behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces, okay? 
The use of the word veil he, uh, is not a metaphor for spatial distance like we read in the song. Okay? Here, it's something different. All right? Um, so j- just get that in mind for just a second. The word veil is not a metaphor uh, uh, for spatial distance. Rather, it's a metaphor for the hardness of one's heart. The hardness of one's heart. If you read 2 Corinthians 3, this is what it tells us, okay? In a hardened state, hard-hearted state, whether we are Jewish or Gentile, if we read the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, we do not understand it properly because of our hard hearts. We might understand the the information, but we don't understand it in the way that God wants to because of hard hearts. We might understand the words, but not embrace the true content. Much like a college professor who is an atheist might teach the Old Testament and not get what it's really about, not believe what it says. Now, Paul says, when one comes to the Lord, the veil is removed so that we can understand the meaning of God's word specifically the Old Covenant, because that's what Paul is talking about, we can understand the meaning of the Old Covenant. And Paul says this. He says that it's in the Old Covenant that we behold the Lord. When you read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that's what it says. When you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed, and there's no more mystery. And that's where you behold the glory of Jesus Christ. In other words, the Old Covenant, as I often tell us, was about Christ and the gospel. The Old Testament is about Christ and the gospel. And as we come to Jesus and the veil is removed, right? we read the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and we hear what God says about Jesus Christ, and we trust what God says about Jesus Christ, and thus we behold Jesus Christ, the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament, and as we behold the Lord, we become like him. Okay, as we behold him, and we talked to our young people about this while we were at winter camp. We spent some time um, in a private area with just our church and talking about the things that we were learning. Um, And this was one of the ideas that was presented at camp, and uh, providentially is one of the things that we're talking about tonight. But as we behold the Lord, we become like him. I'll say it again. Get that phrase in your head. As we behold the Lord, we look upon him, We become like him. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. With the eyes of faith, we behold Jesus, and we are transformed to look like him bit by bit, more and more into his image, more and more into his glory, which is why we were created, to fully reflect the image of our Lord. We become like him by beholding him, and we behold Jesus right now in Scripture. Because physically we can't see him because we're separated by a different veil of space, of distance. But we can see him clearly, all right? This veil, as we look at the word, has already been lifted. But there's coming a day when the spatial distance will be lifted and we will be able to behold his glory face to face. So do you see the two kinds of glory and the two kinds of veils? Two different things, okay? One, the author is referring to spatial distance of the song. One, the author of scripture is referring to the hardness of the heart. Now, if you reflect back to the book of Exodus, you'll remember that scripture says that Moses met with God face to face as how a man meets with his friends, right? As as you and I might meet, 
That's how God met Moses in the tent of meeting before there was a tabernacle, before there was a temple. When Moses came out of that tent, does it, do you recall what happened? If, if you know a little bit about your Old Testament, he came out and his face was glowing. It was glowing and radiating the glory that God had presented to him as he met face to face. So the skin of his face is radiating and shining the light of God. Moses saw, met with God face to face, and Moses was being transformed in, into some the likeness of God, not God, but he was being transformed to somehow radiate and reflect that. Are you with me so far? Okay. So if you want to reflect the glory of God, you got to build a tent of meeting and pray that God will come meet you face to face, right? No, that's the Old Testament, all right? If you want to ref- see God face to face and reflect his glory, or if you want to reflect his glory, let me just say you need to meet with God face to face, okay? And how do you see Jesus face to face without a veil? Because when Moses would go into the, t- uh, to the tent of meeting, he would take off the veil. Only when he came out did he put it back on. If you want to see Jesus with an unveiled face, you go to the word. That's what scripture says. You go to the word because the Lord has removed the veil for us so that when we read scripture, we can see that it's all about Christ. And that's where we see him clearly. And when you see him, based on 2 Corinthians chapter 3, as you see Christ in the word, you are going to reflect his glory like Moses did with God when he met at the tent of meeting. You will look more and more like Jesus bit by bit. That's what the scripture says. Go back and read it. We with all unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord. And Paul explains it's in the old covenant, right? When properly understood, we are being transformed into the same image, into that same glory from one degree of glory to another. So that's very important to understand. Now, um, and the song is talking a little bit about some of that, okay? So we can't see his physical glory, but one day we will. We will be glorified, and he will come back in all his glory. And so that's what this song means by, I see him now faintly. It's referring to, I can see him clearly in the word, but, I, but that's not complete because Christ has not yet come again. So two different senses of seeing Jesus. So there is no contradiction um, she's not being um, um, faulty in her way of describing. She knows she can see Christ in the Word, but there's another way in which I can't see him clearly, all right? Uh, but it will be complete one day. One day we won't have to behold Christ in the Word. One day we will be able to behold Christ with our eyes. And everything that God said about him in his Word, we will be able to see it physically in truth and in complete reality, okay? And so that's one reason why we should desire for Christ to come again so that we may be with him in person face to face. I don't know about you, but the way that Carrie Breck weaves this, the, this poem um, together I think is wonderful. It, it shows the joyful tension that we have to live with in this moment, the joyful tension, okay, that... Um, that we can't see him, but we can. Two different senses. It's a joy to know Christ now without a hardened heart. Seeing him with, in the Old Testament with, with eyes of faith. Yet that joy is not complete until we are with him in person. A blessed day is coming. The day of the Lord, that day is the day of the Lord. When she says the blessed day is coming, that is the day of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord in the good news sense that we've been talking about in the book of Joel. 
For those who aren't Christians, it is the day of the Lord in the bad news sense. They will see Jesus face to face as well, but they will see him as the divine warrior as he comes to make war on all those who remain in unbelief, okay? But for those who are in Christ, who have this veil removed, who see Jesus as our true treasure, it will be a blessed day. It's our day of salvation when it is finalized and completed. And we are glorified and we see the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 2 says this. Read, read along with me on the screen. 2.14. To this he has called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is certain from Scripture that Christ will return and he will return in glory and we who confess him as Savior will obtain or receive from him a, as a gift glory. We will ourselves receive glory. We will be made like him. We will be gloriously glorified, all right, perfected as we behold him face to face in person. And at that point, we will no longer behold him again with the eyes of faith. We will no longer be separated spatially. Anything and everything that presents, uh, prevents us from seeing him completely and fully will be eradicated and our hearts will forever be overwhelmed at his beauty, majesty, and perfection. And I know that I repeat myself often, but again, this will be a physical reality. Too many people preach the gospel as if it is a means to get us to heaven. They, they, do you know if you died tonight that you would go to heaven? As if going to heaven is our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is not necessarily to get to heaven. It is to be with Jesus. And so heaven, Scripture says, is the intermediate state. It is a temporary place where souls go, where our spirits go, and we commune with Jesus. But that is not our final destination, and many people think it is. Okay? Final destination is here on earth as God creates a new heaven and a new earth, and we dwell forever in resurrected bodies. When we experience the resurrection, we don't get resurrected bodies and then go to a spiritual place. All right, God's going to create us a, a new physical place, a new earth for us to dwell on where he will be. And that's what will make the new heaven on earth so marvelous. It is, it is because we are there with God. Okay, And so make sure that we understand that. Um, we will be transformed one day when Jesus comes. Um, when, when Jesus comes and, and the trumpet blast signals the war is coming for unbelievers and that our king is coming, all Christians who have died, all believers who are waiting in heaven will be escorting him to earth and their bodies will be resurrected and united with them as they continue to descend down to earth. And any of us that happen to be alive at that time will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and in the blink of an eye we'll be, we will be transformed to have glorified bodies just like those who were spirits and had their bodies resurrected. If you don't die before then, you don't get a resurrection. You get a glorified body, not a resurrection body, because you didn't die, so you can't be resurrected, all right? But that's what's happening. That's what's going to be coming when we see our Savior face to face in all his glory. Can you imagine, if we happen to be alive, can you imagine what it will look like with perhaps billions of Christians and believers descending from heaven with our Lord in their, in their glorified, resurrected bodies. I mean, it won't take but a second, but we'll be right there with them. We might catch a microsecond of it. But what an amazing thing for the Lord to come down on earth with his kingdom people. That's beauty. That's majesty. 
and he will rectify everything. And uh, that's what's coming. What a blessed day is coming. Now the next verse continues. Verse two says, what rejoicing in his presence when our banished grief and pain, when the crooked ways are straightened, then the dark things shall be plain. Revelation 21, I'm just gonna read this, verses one through four, because God's word is more blessed than anything I could say. But what rejoicing in his presence, when our banished grief and pain, when the crooked ways are straightened and the dark things shall be plain. Look at Revelation 21, verses one through four. The apostle John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And that's what verse two of the song expresses. What rejoicing in his presence we will have. But, but why? Because he's going to wipe away every tear because death will be no more, because the former things are passed away. Life as we know it will be behind us, and things will be different from that point on. And as the hymn says, this is when our grief and pain are banished. This is when all things are made new. If you continue on in verse 5 of Revelation 21, it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, or look, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, these blessings that we read about, right, there's some horrible stuff happening to people who are not of Christ, but the blessings that we receive are the blessings of the new covenant. This is covenant language that is used here. That, that God will be our God and we, and we will be his son. He will be ours. That's how God spoke to Israel in the New Testament according to their covenant. But that long list of sinners, they're gonna perish in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. So that is not a blessed day for them. But if you continue reading Revelation 21 and you move into chapter 22, you read more about the eternal blessed state and it continues. Look at Revelation 22, verses 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now here we see the eternal dwelling state of heaven on earth. There will be Jesus on the throne there. He will be the focus of our time in eternity. 
Nothing accursed will ever be in our eternal dwelling place. All that was crooked will be made straight. All unbelievers and all the unrighteous, those who reject the gospel, will be missing from this eternal promised land. And it is us that will see Jesus face to face, and forever we will reign with him. It's important to sing songs like these because these songs give us the hope of Scripture that Scripture gives us. And we are reminded of the promises of Jesus and what he is going to do for us and that he will be forever with us. We need this story of victory in this song, in the Scripture. We need it sung to us and repeated to us and recited to us over and over again until it comes to pass because it encourages us and it gives us hope because this world is full of sin and we should long for it to be eradicated from all, in all its forms, all sin in all forms, um, in, in the sin that remains in us. We should long for the return of Christ so that we are glorified and will never sin again. But this happens when we see him face to face in all his glory, as the chorus of the song says, face to face in all his glory. Now, at this time, we're going to listen to the hymn. Okay, we're going to listen to three different versions. There aren't a lot of recordings of this song. The ones that are out there are almost all instrumental, either a guitar or piano with nobody singing. <clears throat> so we're going to listen to a very traditional version followed by a couple of modern versions. Now, the traditional version is sung by Dallas Christian Adult Concert Choir. So it's going to sound like a choir. And um, there may be a pipe organ, if I remember correctly. John, maybe just play um, a verse or two, a minute and a half or so of the song, and then we'll move on to the, the second song, okay? is the traditional melody of the song, right? Um, we don't have a choir like that. And I think they did a cappella, so there was no music accompaniment with it, just vo vocals and voices. And if you like that style of music, awesome. And uh, you can check out that hymn. Again, it's by the Dallas Christian Adult Concert Choir. This next version is by a group called Indelible Grace Music. They haven't written music for some 14 years, but Indelible Grace Music uh, they would often take, uh, all they did was take old hymns that a lot of people didn't know, and they would put uh, it to a more folky, uh, modern sound. Um, and so if you loved, if you like listening to hymns in different variation, they have maybe like six or seven albums out from like 2008 to 2014. And so you can find a lot of rich hymns uh, written with uh, more uh, modern musical instruments, but John, just play a clip of this. This one's a little different. Um, I think there's a little bit more minor notes uh, in there, or minor chords, and so it kind of has a, 
alternative feel to it. It's a little, little different, but you may or may not like this. song if, if you like that style of music and uh, I kind of dig it a little bit um, but my favorite version of this song and I had never heard this song until <clears throat> I, I heard this group last year this is a group called Pacific Gold they have not re- uh, put out any new music since 2014 but they have uh, three albums and they too like Indelible Grace took old hymns and put them to very uh, current music this is the version that we sing in our church and we introduced this one what would you say, John? Maybe six months ago, somewhere right around there. Um, this th- I like this song musically because it starts off in a four-four timing and then it changes to a six-eight timing in the middle of the song, and uh, it totally creates a different feel. Even though the same words are sung, um, maybe you can let it play a little bit until that point. But we'll sing it uh, after we listen to a little bit of this. <clears throat>
Now, I don't know if you felt a time change in there. There was a little bit of a break, and then they came back in. Um, <clears throat> this song was a nice challenge for us when we first started playing it. But let's sing this song together. Uh, only faintly, now I see him, uh, the song titled Face to Face. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll be dismissed at the end of the singing of this song. Heavenly Father, thank you for what we've learned tonight <clears throat> in regards to Carrie Breck's poem and Grant Tuller's music as it, they were wed together into an awesome song that, that teaches us your truth, Lord, that teaches us that we have a blessed hope that is coming, that we see Christ now clearly in the word, yet it is not complete, Lord, and we know that there is a veil of space between us and time that keeps us from seeing our Savior face to face. We long for that blessed day when his glory shall be seen face to face. What rejoicing we will have when you banish away all suffering and all sin, when you make things straight. What a blessed day. Lord Jesus, come quickly. As John the Apostle wrote at the end of Revelation, come quickly, Jesus. We love you, and we thank you for the ability to worship you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.